I stumbled upon tonight's author by complete accident and wanted to give you, my kittenish listeners, permission to say the same when you enthuse about her later. I mean, you don't need to thank me or anything. Although, if you want to, you can start by reminding me where I took that big bag of $50 bills, because I know it's around here somewhere, and I thought I told you where it was when we last spoke. In any event, do I have a good story for you? Good evening. It's Friday, the 18th of February, 2011. And it's Miette's Bedtime Story Podcast. Killer Whales by Susan Ditch. I woke up to find Gregor Sansa in my sink. He was enormous, at least two inches long, blue-black, and very fast. I grabbed a china teacup, something the last tenant had left in the house, placed it over him and slid the covered bug to a position over the drain. I hoped he would figure that crawling down the hole was his only alternative, although his scutcheoned shell was far too broad to allow him to do so easily. He was a real monster, and I expected the teacup itself might move across the stainless steel any minute, its rim scraping the leftover grit of cleanser and coffee grounds. It was raining into the bay. Rain streaked the kitchen window and rain into pots of baby cacti and pansies that a catalogue had promised would grow to sequoia dimensions. I opened the window and let it rain in. The spigots and faucets were soon dotted with tiny convex reflections. My beetle, under china roses, slumbered. The wind dropped and the rain fell straight down so that a haze of water bounced from shingles. Gutters turned river-like and drain pipes led to miniature versions of Niagara Falls. I walked out into the rain, stood beside a laurel tree and looked into my neighbour's window. He had changed the arrangement of figures set out behind small panes of glass and I was glad because I hadn't seen him for a while. A statue of St. Francis faced outward from the sill, arms outstretched, one hand chipped off, white plaster showing through the scratched brown paint of his robe. He was surrounded by toy sheep, soldiers, a couple of wind-up Godzillas, a toy bed with two syringes tucked in it, and a candlestick which had a flame-shaped light bulb where a wick would have been. I hadn't seen these objects before. I was afraid my neighbour would catch me staring at the sleeping needles as water dripped down my back, but his ground-floor apartment looked empty. Behind a louvered glass door, the rooms were dim, tables dusty. Some things aren't as different as people like to claim. When I was a child, I used to think about language as an odd job lot of words, random and haphazard. You find a string to do the work, to effect meaning. Then the metaphor evolved again. 
Words were like a school of jellyfish with thousands of tentacles streaming below their surface, and some of those tentacles were attached or stuck together below the waves. The seemingly unconnected jellyfish were really Siamese twins, if you looked closely. The connections might be syllables or synonyms. I was a rubberized underwater diver looking for those strands which tied words together. How might Aztec be like Creole or Yayo, like Ikan? I don't think I was innocently looking for natural linguistic connections. I deliberately tied tentacles together, ignoring my own stung fingers. Abandoning articulate speech, I turned to origins. I listened to babies, trying to determine when a child begins to drop the nonsense from his or her speech and link the production of sounds to the expression of desire, gratification or frustration. Crawling, staring, drooling onto tape recorders, they slowly begin to identify clusters of sounds, priming the language pump it's called. For several years I watched them play and cry, then shifted my attention to unlocking the meaning of monkey chatter and bird songs. I monitored whale calls, seismographic blurps on a blue screen, interpreting each wave as if it were a kind of dangling claws or tense shift, yet often felt lost in the proto-languages of animals and children. Now I look at words as isolated catatonic patients in a state hospital whose funds have been cut off. It is a scene of bankruptcy, where there is no longer any relationship between sound and meaning. The orderlies smoke joints in the unswept halls and take all kinds of pills right out in the chaotic open. They speak of morphine in morphemes, if possible, and I'm even more convinced of the futility of this project, looking for sources. I work at the university lab, annotating the speech of sea animals, particularly the killer whales on loan from SeaWorld in San Diego. The lab, crescent-shaped, a fingernail clipping in the sand, is underground, equipment separated by plates of glass from huge tanks which contain the animals, and I watch them swim in very blue water. If the animals can see me, through windows on the inner curve, they give no sign. There are manatees, members of the siren family, and a tank of rare pygmy sperm whales. Black and white killer whales are really giant porpoises, the fast swimmers, able to swallow dolphins and smaller porpoises alive. According to Eskimo legends, killer whales began as hungry wolves who transformed themselves into aquatic creatures, overwhelmed by the seduction of hunting in the Pacific, and once transformed, none of them returned to land. Ferocious in packs, they are known to eat the weak and wounded members of their own families, but in SeaWorld, or here in the lab, there's hardly a chance for cannibalism. In SeaWorld, they performed with swimmers on school vacation. Girls held up rings for them to catch at the end of their noses. In enclosed pools, the porpoises were fed small live fish, easily caught, no pursuit involved. 
They consumed meals with the matter-of-fact laughter of someone on a couch tossing popcorn into his mouth. The young imitated and learned their mother's calls, but the question was posed. If one of the mothers died, would the calf remember her call, or would it learn the adopted call of some other killer whale? I threw them fish and listened closely, but all our mothers lived, and my mesis continued without interruption. I would pat the whales when they surfaced, and felt something had been added to my identity when they recognised me. Seaworld knew our lab was waiting for the possibility of observing the effect of a parent's death on learning cells, but it wasn't an experiment we could perform. In Seaworld, when a mother died on its own, of more or less natural causes, the calf was transferred up north to our lab. I watched them swim and dive in bluish light and listened to their calls. The patterns of their swimming followed similar curves traced by the device that records their speech, but I wondered if the orphan calf, as she mimicked the chain of sounds produced by some other member of the herd, was able to forget her mother in the middle of an untroubled swim. Did she hear echoes of her mother's call mixed up in another whale's bark? These were questions for electrodes and heart monitors. Her face is smooth, teeth glinted. I was clueless. Once my neighbour put a fishbowl in his window. Goldfish and guppies swam through a miniature pink castle surrounded by artificial ferns. A naked Barbie doll, or something like one, sat on the sill watching the fish. The doll's knees weren't jointed, so its legs shot straight out, aggressively. On the other side of the broad window ledge, another doll was submerged head down in a glass tank, surrounded by rubber fish placed in inquisitive attitudes as if they were watching her, although later it occurred to me the rubber fish set-up might have been an ambush. The doll's legs stuck out above the rim and its blonde hair floated in the water. I'm not sure if this was a gesture in my direction, a way of beckoning, teasing or mimicking, and I never asked. Perhaps the tableau had nothing to do with me at all. Up until then the sill had contained a collection of cigarette lighters shaped like pistols and a lamp whose base was an Elvis Presley head. I thought my neighbour had an interest in things which model themselves after something else, which hide behind another identity or another history, but now I'm not so sure. The last time I saw him he had become very thin and walked slowly, stopping to buy a newspaper at our corner. My neighbour, who constructs stories out of ephemera, toys, needles, and nicked-up saints, is dying, and I don't know if there's been anyone in to learn his speech, anyone who could decode these window displays, and say with certainty, this is what he meant by, and I will repeat to you. I called him before I left, but no one picked up. The light changed slightly over the water, although I couldn't see the sky, but without looking at a clock I knew it was late, locked up the lab, and began to drive away from the coast. Four all-nighters huddled together, 
a lit island in a dark street. Twenty-four hour bus stop fruit and vegetables with a marquee constructed of lemons, peaches and eggplant stacked outside. That's Rentertainment, a video store whose windows displayed life-size cardboard cutouts of muscled actors and animated caricatures that, too, seemed to glow in the dark. A gas station defended by looping elephantine hoses and a Greek restaurant. I thought I might see the same people at each, buying eggplant, renting a movie, sitting in the restaurant drinking coffee to stay awake, then driving home. Electric lights shaped like candles had been placed in each of Demeter's windows, romantic in the rain if you've just driven up for gas and aren't anxious to get home. I parked, seduced by the electric candles, but also because Demeter's aluminum-sided diner reminded me of Sam's, torn down long ago in another city. I used to take a bus from school to Sam's downtown, sitting with friends at a curving formica counter with boomerang shapes embedded in it. We'd order Cokes. The man who fried everything under the sun had a thin, pissed-off face. We watched him. However much we tried to wrinkle our grey skirts and green blazers, we felt trapped and ordinary, while his tattoo of a woman with a whip and a dangling cigarette spoke of foreignness. I was sure he hated us because we ordered little more than french fries and showed no visible signs of responsibility. Sam's had an electric sign over the grill. Above the name of the restaurant was a blackboard-covered field split by a hyperbolic curve with a dot of light tracing its trajectory. The spellbinding illusion was that the colour of the dot of light changed as it travelled along the curve. Blue Hill, Green Valley, Yellow Hill, Red Valley, Purple Hill, then back to the beginning. A visual metronome. It was mesmerising when you had nothing to talk about, or even when you did. The bathroom in Sam's reflected someone's idea of what signified feminine. Smudged grey and pink tile cracked for mica threatening to spill its gold glitter. But the feminine was covered by names and numbers scratched into yellow metal, written on walls and mirrors, even the paper towel dispenser. Pleadings and demands, secrets made public, ridiculous limericks. The Aztecs and Mayans had chuk-tuk, pictogrammic calendars or talking pictures, and I wondered if the names in Sam's bathroom weren't some kind of message system too. I didn't imagine the rude poems and crooked hearts had anything to do with loneliness. They were just dirty and funny. I saw men and women meet each other at Sam's. They slid into booths or sat down heavily. Somehow they found each other. I tried to listen to their conversations, but from the counter I couldn't really hear anything. Once I heard the phrase, dirty laundry, several times the word, telephone, then, letter from Ply Koo. We were warned not to go there. The nail in the coffin of our trips to Sam's came when a man was arrested in one of the booths. 
I don't remember what he was charged with or if he was convicted, but I continued to go there, usually alone. I could have given anything for a weekend job at SeaWorld swimming with the porpoises, but we lived in a landlocked state. In a small town near two state lines, Sam's served as amusement park and laboratory. I saw packages left in the phone booth, whose wooden door, an accordion of two panels, easily offered a screen. Women came and went quickly in the late afternoon, not stopping to talk to each other in booths or over the counter. The long-haired men who'd picked up the packages used the word babe like nothing I'd ever heard before. My mother's warnings hadn't described them. Her language was so full of omissions that I didn't learn it. I've read of tribes where one language is spoken by men and a quite different one by women, but consider a tribe in which daughters speak a different language unrelated to that of their mothers. An impractical invention, ridiculous and fantastic. Let's say they do speak the same language, but in this tribe the language is constructed so that mothers and daughters who take pleasure in contradicting each other are able to do so at every possible opportunity. Every time a spear is hammered, every time a bowl is cast or fish are fried, they disagree. One says something is blue, the other says no, it's green. One says offence is taken, the other says no, you misinterpret, you always do, and I'm sick of it. The tanks I watch appear serene in comparison. One learns the call of the other, and that's it. I have no one to repeat my mother's warnings to in any case, except possibly baby killer whales who ignore me, just as a child who is too often told what to do might finally ignore an adult, or try to. So perhaps the result is the same. At Demeter's the news on the hour is broadcast from a radio kept by the cash register. Mr Demeter turns it on only late at night, when a few drivers or midnight video renters straggle in and the diner is sporadically empty anyway. The announcer snaps out the words, Persian Gulf. It's difficult to pronounce these soft syllables with such brittleness. Persian. Person. Sand as fine as powdered sugar, Mr. Demeter echoed something he once heard. The radio again. Tariq. Kirkuk, Baghdad, Mesopotamia, and Al-Bazra slam into typhus, typhoid, microorganisms. Here the tongue lingers. I try to imitate the announcer, but am unable to mimic his speech. Forty thousand body bags have just been ordered, although no shot has yet been fired. Demeter hits the cash register, so ringing interrupts the newscast. He's not really successful in blocking out the sound, and I imagine if Bartleby suffered paralysis as a result of working in a dead-letter office, those who sew and measure zippers and nylon on a body-bag assembly line may also linger in future cells, saying only, I prefer not to. No one will guess their histories. I line up the salt and pepper shakers, the sugar dispenser and the ketchup bottle as if each object represents a sewing machine operator, a packer, a filer of invoices. 
windows are streaked with rain, and within, that's rentertainment, a clerk is counting orange video bucks. Another moves a cardboard Julia Roberts out of the window, putting his hands between her legs to lift her, and laughing at a man who stares at him, laughing too. Plastic coverings are lowered over fruit and vegetables next door. Under blinking fluorescent lights, daffodils, hyacinths, and paper whites glow like supernatural parodies of themselves. Someone had wiped dust from the jalousied door. Objects had been removed from his window, and it remained empty the next day as well. Just a week before the monster had risen from my drain. Perhaps Gregor Samsa fled with the instinctive knowledge that everything he was used to had been slated to be swept away. I turned on the television, but these kinds of deaths aren't reported. There are so many of them. Even after the news I left it on, providing a blur of sound in the house for a few minutes. I didn't pay attention really, but as something like America's Most Wanted or Unsolved Mysteries followed the news broadcast, it occurred to me that the man behind the grill at Sam's might turn up on one of these programs, computer-aged, because it's years later. All kinds of people do, followed by the warning, if you should see this man or woman, please call. If this should happen, my mother will say, I told you so, you were lucky to get away unharmed. Perhaps I know her language better than I realise, or am ever willing to admit. The killer whales swim in confined pools. Curves of whale speech snaking across a laboratory monitor resembled the curve of the electric sign in Sam's that held you spellbound. Drink Coke, drink Coke, drink Coke. I recognize patterns of sound, but the meanings they bark remain elusive. Whether they are arguing or talking about dinner, expressing boredom or depression, the screen doesn't tell me, but I sit and watch. It's late. After Demeter's, Mr. D has refused to listen to the radio for the time being. He doesn't want to hear about refugees or nerve gas so I get a coffee to go and return to work for a few more hours. The microphones are set in the whale pool. I am listening.